You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with uh, Ray Fisman, who is a professor of economics at Boston University. Also, you teach business as well. (laughs) Technically, I think you're in behavioral economics, and you're also the author of a number of books. The most recent book is called Corruption, Everything You Need to Know About Corruption. I don't have that one with me. Couldn't find it, but I have a bunch of your other books. Actually, I think your most recent book is this one, Risky Business, Why Insurance Markets Fail and What to Do About It. Yep, that's right. But you also got a bunch of other books, including The Org, The Underlying Logic of the Office, and this one, The Inner Lives of Markets, How People Shape Them and They Shape Us. And then we've got Economic Gangsters, Corruption, Violence, and the Poverty of Nations. Welcome, Ray. Thank you for having me. Well, it's hard to know where to start. We'll ultimately dig, I think, into uh, corruption. But I wanted to mention these two books here. One is about markets, and one is about organizations. And it, it seems like the stories that you tell in both of these books track very closely a course that I used to teach many years ago, which is really all about organizational economics and how we've made a lot of progress. And one of the ways in which we've made progress is through what you describe as kind of toy models, right? And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this kind of methodological advancement, right? Which when I think about all the different people who have won Nobel Prizes, you can summarize their insights typically with these fairly simple stories. And when people hear these stories, they resonate and say, yeah, of course this makes sense. And then you wonder, well, why did people win Nobel Prizes for these things like Akerlof's Lemons story? Because they seem exposed to be so obvious. But for economists, they're seen as these wonderful discoveries. So maybe talk a bit about how economics has evolved over the last, I don't know, eight decades and and how we've started to use these kinds of narrative nuggets as at the heart of what we do. Yeah, I do think the word narrative is well chosen. And as per your directive to go through the long arc of economic thought, history of economic thought the last century or so, it really did used to be the case that we aspired to describe an entire economy in the context of a set of equations. That is, we're chasing the holy grail of a model that would capture a market economy in its entirety to distill it to its essence. And I think that you know, there are still economists who pursue that agenda, but it's more like, if I can put it this way, a mathematical playground of sorts, rather than necessarily something that aims to distill reality. We've kind of shifted very much to what people describe, and you described as toy models, where you try to think of a specific situation and the salient features of that specific scenario. So what is the nature of the relationship between a bank and its borrowers? Was the relationship between an insurance company and its customers? How would you describe the collection of the companies that sell breakfast cereals in supermarkets across the country? These are all specific cases 
of markets that people have tried to distill in terms of a much simpler model than something that would reflect the market in its entirety. And I do take your point that all of this stuff seems not even ex post obvious, but in many cases, simply obvious. But I think there are two responses to that. One is laying down the key features of something that has some implications that are fairly obvious also leads you to implications that are somewhat less obvious. Okay, so in the latest book, Risky Business, which is on insurance markets, we talk about a somewhat more complicated version of the Akerlof lemons model in which you actually want to subsidize the health insurance of relatively healthy, young, rich people. And that actually makes poor, sick, elderly people better off. And so you kind of need this framework that builds on what are relatively simple insights to develop these more complicated ones. So that's the first thing. The second um, observation that I'll make is that even these kind of obvious implications are so often lost to us when embedded in the so-called real world. And so what do I mean by that? A very memorable conversation with the late Eddie Lazier, who is an iconic organizations economist at Stanford. It was in a castle in Germany, so that in itself made it rather memorable. But we were talking about what Eddie Lazier had learned in his life as a professional economist that had been useful to him as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under George W. Bush. And what he said is, you know, you spend years and years and years doing research just so you know which Ec-10 model to apply and when. That is, these obvious insights somehow seem to elude us so often when we actually need to apply them. Let me give, again, in the context of insurance, since that's the most recent book project that I've been spending my time on, let me give an example of this. So it's not an insurance market, but it is a market that has this feature that's shared by all insurance markets, and that's the problem of selection. So what is a selection market? A market that suffers from a selection problem is one in which businesses don't just care how much they sell, but they care whom they are selling to. For example, Star Market, a supermarket around the corner from us, doesn't care whether it's me who buys their Cheerios or you who buys their Cheerios. They don't care who buys their Cheerios. They just care how many boxes of Cheerios they sell. Whereas Allstate cares a great deal about whether it is me that buys their auto insurance or someone else. Because if I'm a good driver, then I'm the good type of customer. And if I'm a bad driver, then I'm a very bad kind of customer. So our favorite example of a selection market goes back to the 1980s when executives at American Airlines had what seemed like the bright idea at the time of locking in uh, some of their high-end customers by offering something called the AirPass. So an AirPass was something that you paid $250,000 for, a one-time payment, and it gave you the right to take for the rest of your life as many first-class flights on American as you wanted. And American at the time said they'd run the numbers, they thought it would attract business customers, build loyalty into their products, etc., and that they 
figured they could make money on this. Very quickly found out this was not the case. And to understand why, you really just have to look at the first month or so of what happened after they released the air pass. Who was willing to pay a quarter million dollars in 1980 dollars? That's now the equivalent of about three quarters of a million dollars. Who was willing to pay that much money for unlimited first class air travel? Only people who love to fly. So there's the infamous case of an AirPass purchaser who, in the first month after he bought his pass, flew round trip Chicago, London, London, Chicago, 16 times in one month, which is not something you're doing for business travel. You're doing it for, I don't know, the warm cashews and the champagne lying flat at 36,000 feet. I don't know because I'm not that kind of customer. So they did what is the natural instinct. If costs exceed revenues, what do you do? You raise prices. But that only makes the problem worse. Okay? Because now you only get, instead of 20% of your customers being the bad type now, 50% of your customers are the bad type. So you raise prices again. And pretty soon, you find that you're getting only the customers who spend 30 out of 30 days up in the air using up your valuable seats flying Chicago, London, and everywhere else. So, you know, on the one hand, it's sort of an obvious thing that only the bad types of customers are going to want to buy air passes. On the other hand, Bob Crandall, CEO at the of American at the time, didn't seem to occur to him or any of the people he was working with. And you know, I think it's Frontier Airlines is doing the same thing right now. And you see the same thing. They have this unlimited air pass, not quite as generous if you've ever flown on Frontier. You know that it's not like warm cashews and champagne and lie flat seats. But the same problem, you see it happening in real time. So, you know, the, these, these things are obvious, but hard to see in the moment. Yeah. And then 40 years later, of course, we saw a movie pass, right? And so it looked like the same, you know, movie playing itself over again. Yes. Any all you can X suffers from this problem. All you can eat, all you can fly, all you can whatever. Well, part of what you describe in all the books is this mapping of economic theory into real world. So, I mean, economists will look at the real world, they'll see something working in practice, and then they have to figure out how it works in theory. That's one of the common jokes about economists. But then it's about taking what you see in theory and then converting it back into practice. And that's kind of where the economists get into the business of either advising companies, training business people, or engaging in economic engineering. And so how important is it that these insights get converted into, I guess, mnemonics that people can carry around with them? Because I, I can imagine that the people who created MoviePass were not in your class. <laughs> I mean, if they were in your class, would they need to see an exact example in, in the movie business for them to see the connections between the American Airlines story and the movie story? Yeah, you could say that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing because down that path that a little knowledge leads you is probably the path of hubris. That might be one way of interpreting Eddie Lazier's comments in particular. There's definitely something, there are two things, and this kind of takes us also in a different direction. So I don't teach business school students anymore. I taught them for 16 years. I enjoyed it a lot. But let me take, make two observations about it. 
One is you do kind of um, hope that you equip people with these insights about the world that have sufficient depth to them that they can apply them to circumstances they actually see in practice. You hope you teach them a few ways of thinking about the world that are valuable. But there is also this tension in conceiving of what is at the heart of many of the models that are so prominent in the field of economics is they often are the basis of converting, let's say, happiness into profits. So optimal pricing has at its heart maximizing profits with no regard to consumer welfare. Like you care about consumer wealth. In fact, if you could extract every last drop of consumer welfare by, say, consummate price discrimination, you're running, I don't know, Amazon. Well, Amazon's actually an interesting example. They do not price discriminate in the way that would allow you to extract everything from consumers, but that's a whole other tangent. Well, actually, Bezos tried that. I know. Yeah, He did do individual level price discrimination and it backfired. Yes. And it blew up in his face. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a whole other set of questions around that, about the extent to which in insurance markets, one way of dealing with this problem is if you knew exactly who the 16 times a month round trip Chicago, London people were, you just charge them more. Problem solved. But somehow people hate this kind of individualized pricing. At the risk of going down another little rabbit hole, let me observe that I taught basic economics for managers for many, many years. And I have certainly observed over that time, and the last time I taught such a course was 2015, but between, say, 2000 and 2015, an increased acceptance for people just taking as given that if prices aren't individualized, at least you get something like demand-driven real-time pricing. I remember handing out articles in class in the early 2000s about some Major League Baseball teams experimenting with, say, charging different prices if the Yankees came to play the Red Sox versus the Blue Jays. Yeah, the Giants in San Francisco were the first to do that. The Giants were. That's actually the article. Yes, that's the article I would hand out. And I remember the article talking about, you know, we'll see how baseball fans how much they'll be willing to accept this. And it seems like, at least in that domain, they absolutely have. Well, they're up to a point because they do have a number of overrides that they have for the algorithm to make sure that prices don't exceed certain thresholds and a whole bunch of other manual overrides that they put in place because of pushback. Yeah, and I'm sure that Uber has the same thing, and I do suspect that's evolved over time. And so my wife is a physician. We used to live in New York, and there was one day during a particularly brutal rainstorm, though the entire arc of the story is relevant for how you might think about this if you're Uber. So she worked at Bellevue Hospital. We worked on, we lived on the Upper West Side. So that's diagonally across Manhattan during some brutal rainstorm when the subway, for whatever reason, was shut down and demand was very high. I think she paid like $150 for a car to take her to work. And she swore she would never take an Uber again. And so clearly she was upset by this. 
but let's just say the vitriol was relatively short-lived. So there's often people maybe take more principled stands when asked their feelings than when they reveal their principles through their actions. That's another common thread in economics. Yeah, and all of your works are filled with these wonderful stories. And when I meet MBAs like 20 years after they graduate, I think they say that the most important skill they learned as practitioners is sort of how to pick the optimal level of abstraction. How far do they need to zoom out in order to understand something and how far do they have to kind of zoom in? But you sometimes wonder when you look at something like Silicon Valley Bank, would they have been less likely to run into this if they had firmly affixed in their brain, you know, the Orange County story, as opposed to being fluent with models of duration gap? How do people as practitioners actually go about their jobs? Is it through model switching or is it usually through some more formal exercise? Let me put it this way. Ben Bernanke was a historian, an economic historian in many ways. Why tell the story of Frontier Airlines? I'm referencing a historical antecedent. So I don't think you can possibly come at a problem from a pure model-based approach. You need to know something about history. It is very tempting to invoke, among other things, the Princess Bride in the decision to go into Afghanistan and Iraq. Like, what is the one lesson that we've learned? I can't remember how it shows up in The Princess Bride, but never start a land war in Central Asia. So people who don't know their history are foolish enough to believe that there's been some structural break that separates them from history. You do that with great caution. You know, you say that on the one hand. On the other hand, you would say if everyone were so tied to historical precedent, we would never see anything, any advances. And I will give another selection market-related example. So we have yet to see anyone who has made divorce insurance work as a profitable enterprise, because who on earth, on their wedding night, wants to hedge against lawyers' costs four years in the future if things don't work out? Not the happiest of couples. No one has ever been able to, certainly not at scale, profit from income sharing with college students where you pay instead of a loan, you just take a fraction of their salary. Who's going to be willing to give up a fraction of their salary? People who think they'll be poets and dreamers, not the ones that are going to be Silicon Valley engineers. These are not like impossibility theorems. It's more like these are enterprises that have always failed in the past. But who are we to say that some entrepreneur more imaginative and enterprising than myself won't come up with something in the future that solves this problem? So on the one hand, yeah, you definitely want to know your history as well as the models, which are both very relevant to these particular settings, divorce insurance, income sharing, student loans or income sharing in place student loans. But, you know, we need entrepreneurial dreamers as well. Yeah, you tell the story, and I think it was in The Inner Lives of Markets where Joel Badolny, that was a professor at Stanford at the time, right? Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, and when he was skeptical of the whole project of eBay, it was because he was deeply aware of, you know, Hacker Loss, Lemon's model. But when you study models like that, 
you're also kind of studying the boundary conditions. Once you understand why the markets fail in a particular circumstance, then it kind of forces you to focus on what needs to happen or what needs to be done in order to make them work, right? What needs to be done to fix it. I think that, so you gave the best example, the one that should have been in my mind about entrepreneurship overcoming what are these inherent problems, in this case also, again, a problem that can be tied back to asymmetric information. So Joel Podolny was someone who I'd known for years. I can't remember how this came up in a conversation with him, but he had, I'm drawing it, Jeff Skoll, one of the eBay founders, was in his class at Stanford. And near the end of, as graduation approached, he ran into Jeff Skoll on campus, asked him what he was doing the next year. And Skoll, I guess, had the option of going back to Knight Ritter to do some kind of mid-level management type job or go do this thing, which was not called eBay at the time, but ultimately became eBay. And as Podolny retold the story, he told Skoll to follow his eBay dreams and that you know Knight Ritter and McKinsey and Goldman Sachs, they would always be there. And to fail in Silicon Valley is, if you fail well, it's an asset, not a liability. But after they had that conversation, he remembers thinking, He's going to be looking for a job at Knight Ritter awfully soon. And what he had in mind was exactly the problem that did plague eBay in its early years, which was you're making such a leap of faith in buying a baseball card or a stamp or whatever, sight unseen from someone on the other side of the country. But it also means that you really have to focus on what are the sorts of inputs into this platform that will confront this very basic problem in the business model. So yeah, Podolny saw it as a fatal flaw, as I'm sure I would have as well, but that's because we are professors of relatively modest imagination, sorry, Joel, relative to the entrepreneurial energy and spirit of the omidyars and schools of the world. Well, now, a lot of your work has focused on corruption. And of course, the most famous article, one of the most famous articles that I have read over the years is the one that you did with the United Nations diplomats. And I think it's rightfully famous, but lots of people have been trying to tackle the problem of corruption for as long as governments and organizations have existed. What do you think people get wrong about it? You sometimes talk about the fundamental attribution error. I mean, do people think of this primarily as a, a moral issue and fail to really understand the motivations of the actors? So let me make a few observations. First of all, like the trillion dollar question, which I don't have, if I had an answer to this question, I'd be, I'm sure, off spending my time trying to make whatever the answer to this question is happen, whatever the answer is to make that happen. But the trillion-dollar question is essentially, how did we get from where we were in 19th century America to where we are today? How did Sweden get from where it was in the 18th century to where it is today? Because there are many societies that came from very corrupted political roots to have what are, by any global standard, relatively clean governments. And so I'm sure there are many, many, many elements to that story. I think that to come back to your specific question of what do people get wrong, I think there are a number of things that would be helpful in moving forward 
One is that people do often take the view that corruption is almost this binary thing, that our objective is to get to a world with it. You know, I believe there's at least some, maybe it's Transparency International has as their motto towards a world without corruption. I hope that's not their motto, because that's an unrealistic aspiration. And I think that has at least a couple of problems. One is, you know, there is an emerging body of work which suggests that you, know, you give some amount of discretion. You give procurement officers in Italy some amount of discretion. Italy being a place with relatively high corruption in the developed world. And they often use it to the benefit of the public. And so if you think about corruption as something that you have to drive to zero, you will tie the hands of these poor procurement officials, tie it in red tape, so to speak. And you're probably creating a bigger problem. The medicine is worse than the disease, as the saying goes. The other is that it creates unrealistic expectations. And I think of this as actually a big concern because what I see as a substantial problem is that corruption is, I'm sure, very undermining to trust in government. And if people have this unrealistic aspiration as to what government should be, it prevents them from helping to sustain government as a constructive institution. And so one thing that actually troubles me a lot in the U.S. context is, well, there are a few things, but one is that you know people have come to be so cynical about government. And what I have in my own mind as I say this is there's a New York Times story, I don't know, maybe six months ago, which talked about the profitable trades made by U.S. legislators. So it was on the front page of the Times, above the fold, very prominent story. And, you know, it's true that lots of politicians in America have made spectacularly profitable trades. It's also true that many of them have made spectacularly unprofitable trades. And the best work that we have on this particular question suggests that if you pool all members of the House and senators, their portfolios, look at their performance over time, it doesn't do any better than buying an index fund at Vanguard. Maybe it does worse because they trade more. But it's very undermining to trust in government for people to see this about their legislators. And so I think you know, some amount of Restrictions on trading, I don't think matter so much because it limits actual corruption. I think it's just to reduce perceptions of corruption. The whole business with Clarence Thomas, you know, I've talked to judges about this and they wholeheartedly agree with this view on it. It is at least somewhat ambiguous whether he violated any laws, but it was incredibly undermining to trust in the courts. And that's almost as big a problem as corruption in itself. That's kind of a meandering start of an answer to your question about what do people misperceive about this problem. But I'm sure you know, there are more answers to that than I have fingers and toes. Well, I guess there are a lot of different definitions of corruption. The only thing they have in common is that it's something that we think is improper but you look at examples like from the prisoner of war camps, and also, I mean, we know about examples from centrally planned economies where it's corruption that kind of makes everything work, right? So if you have too many rules, then, you know, the only way to get discretion is through 
violating those rules. So is there good corruption and bad corruption? Yeah, so I will never say that all else equal, a bit more corruption makes the world a better, richer, happier place. The problem is the all else equal is a pretty big qualifier. So I think very few people, probably no one who's thought a lot about the problem of corruption would say, oh, allowing for some grease on balance might be good for the world. Corruption is the grease that keeps the gears of commerce moving. At the same time, we do have to confront these very uncomfortable counterexamples to the all corruption is bad view of the world. So I wrote my dissertation on corruption in Indonesia under Suharto. So that's my go-to example for this, that in the 30 years of Suharto rule, the country grew at 6% a year under what was at the time by some definition, transparency is in particular the most corrupt country in the world. And so you have to wonder, like, what was it about the Suharto system that allowed this to work? Now, if I can go on a sort of on a tangent from the theme of corruption, but not really, let me just say that, so first of all, please don't take this as an endorsement of the Suharto regime. I do remember describing growth under Suharto in a presentation that I gave in China, maybe 2018 or 2019. And an elderly professor came up after the presentation and said, whatever growth was like, the way that Suharto treated the Chinese minority was horrific and excusable. And so, you know, there's a lot to welfare that you don't measure in GDP per capita. There was at least some irony to his observation because as someone, as an outsider to China at the time, my first thought was, well, you could say the same thing about Chinese growth and minority populations there as well. But putting that aside for now, though I'll come back to that in just a moment. The other observation that I would make is that Indonesia didn't exactly choose Suharto. Suharto chose Indonesia. There is this great work by Ben Olkin and Ben Jones, which makes the observation that growth under dictators tends to be either really high or really low relative to democracies. But the problem is precisely which dictator you get. That's not a choice variable because, again, Suharto chooses Indonesia. Indonesia doesn't choose Suharto. I do want to also just come back for a moment to have the classic argument in favor of corruption as it comes from, I can't remember the name of the article, but by a guy who at the time was a professor at Columbia Business School, Nathaniel Leff, and was an observer of South American political economy, Brazil in particular, and I'm sure that colored his view on these things. There's very much kind of an argument that corruption is what will be our salvation in the face of stupid, incompetent, misguided bureaucrats who just make dumb and inefficient rules. Now, there can be some truth to that without endorsing the efficient corruption view. That's the first thing. The second thing is Nathaniel Left and many who came after him really were quite focused on money or income as the relevant measure of well-being. And we had the recent example of buildings falling down after earthquakes in Turkey. The same thing happened in Sichuan after the earthquake there in 2008. 
And very often, these human catastrophes, human tragedies, are traced back to building inspectors that are bribed, a local mayor, in the case of one story in Turkey, who took $200,000 donation to the local soccer team that he was honorary president of or something. But you know, these are things that can make a place seem richer, but have welfare consequences that don't necessarily show up in GDP per capita. They create these vulnerabilities. They create these tragedies on an individual scale. Rana Plaza, which is the worst workplace disaster, as far as I know, possibly in human modern history. I can't remember how many stories it was, but textile factories stacked one on top of the other, collapsed, killing over a thousand people. This was in Bangladesh. And it turned out that the owner was a local political boss. And so it had literally Inspectors had come days prior and said this place has to be shut down, but the owner was able to keep it open via corruption. Now, I've always thought of corruption as a principal agent problem, right? If someone comes in and pays the guy at the DMV for a driver's license, that's a revenue that the state as principal could have captured. And so it's these two people entering into a deal that's fundamentally excluding, right, the principal. And so, you know, why don't principles invest in technologies that overcome the principal-agent problem. I mean, oftentimes it seems like the principles are indifferent to the corruption that they have going on in the organizations. You know, Mobutu famously told his soldiers, you know, go and collect your own pay from the citizens. Okay, so let me give a couple of related examples. First, you know, it's exactly for the reason that you could buy a driver's license that I don't know if it's China-wide. One of my students was telling me about this, but they switched to an entirely automated driver's test. And this solved, at least, that solved the corruption problem because you couldn't bribe the machine that was giving you the test. But it turned out that it was incredibly easy to game the computerized driver's test because people quickly found out, oh, you just have to do these four things right, and then the computer will pass you. So one, you know, it just goes back to you know, the cost and benefit to any intervention. In this case, you are taking away discretion, and that reduces corruption, but it also makes the government service less effective. The other observation that I'll make is that I used to be much more of a techno-skeptic. There was a particular paper that had a huge effect on me on the rollout of biometric IDs in India and their effect on theft through government public assistance programs. So at least for some time, and to the present for some of these public programs, you needed to show an ID that was connected to some, I think it was a retinal scan, something like that, in order to get subsidized liquid propane gas, which is a huge line item in the Indian government's budget, and also to participate in this workfare program that they have. Okay, so that prevented local officials from just creating false identities and then putting them on their these phony people on, or dead people or whoever on the payroll. And it did actually lead to a substantial shrinking of the gap in how much people who were eligible for these programs reported receiving and how much the government paid out 
in expenditure through these programs. Okay, so it reduced theft via these programs, it reduced corruption via these programs. What happened to the liquid propane gas program is certainly instructive. And I, there are other examples that one can give of this. So it was something that saved the Indian government potentially billions of dollars. And yet, despite these savings, they canceled it at some point, totally out of the blue. One story that I've heard as to why they canceled it is that the black marketeers can be very persuasive. So this cut off their access to black market LPG, and they found ways of persuading legislators to reverse course on this. And one might conjecture that a black marketeer can be very persuasive, perhaps with a baseball bat, in ways that voters cannot be. So part of that is really saying that you can't really think of the government as a unified principle. You know, the legislators have their own agendas. The bureaucrats have their own agendas. There's no single principle that's the residual claimant here. No, but the main message I want to give, which I was a little, the wind up was a little too long, is that every technology has an on and off switch. And you still have a, a human being that ultimately, my friend Miriam Golden has stories about this with electronic voting in Ghana and the inexplicable failure of certain electronic voting machines in places where the government was perhaps expecting to do less well. So, you know, technology is good, but it doesn't relieve the public of responsibility as the ultimate principle in all of this, in ensuring that public officials behave in their interests rather than in self-interest. And going back to, I have, on this note, I have to go back to this issue of trust in government and another study which for me, I'm sure there are many ways of getting to this insight, and I think it's really quite broadly applicable. So there was a um, randomized trial done in local elections in Mexico where they informed voters in some places of allegation, perhaps potential misdeeds of incumbents, and in others they didn't, to look at the impact of informing voters about incumbent corruption on election outcomes. And what they found was that the incumbent's vote share was unaffected, but turnout went down. So one concern I have and one real barrier to finding our way to a solution in the context of a democratic political system is that people see corruption, they just think, oh, the whole system's rotten, they're all the same. And that makes it very, it's made even harder by the fact that we have seen in many instances, politicians run on anti-corruption platforms only to find out they're just as corrupt as the people they replaced. So it's very undermining to citizens' faith that they can be part of the solution. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the anti-corruption campaigns are just kind of shakedowns, right? I was in Saudi Arabia at the time when a number of the wealthy folks were being locked up, you know, and it seemed to be more just to figuring out like who a test of strength it was almost like a some kind of ramsey tax on these large entities in the kingdom right so the mother of all anti-corruption crackdowns we would say at the moment is the um, anti-corruption campaign in china which arrived with xi jinping in 2012 2013 and people certainly said that about china's anti-corruption campaign 
which is, it, you know, it almost surely served multiple purposes that it served to appease citizen concerns of corruption run amok. And I think there are very few people who you would talk to in China who would say at least petty corruption. I think most people agree that petty corruption has dropped very substantially. But it also was perhaps a way of dispensing with rivals and enemies. I did hear, I certainly I cannot attest to the veracity of this claim, but I heard that the inspection units that would go to visit a prefecture or a province to investigate corruption claims, that there was actually a market for being spared their attention, which the irony would be something else. Well, I think some people have uh, written that the crackdown on corruption in the Ukraine right now is troublesome because it gets rid of some of the checks and balances by curtailing what they think of as the private sector. I'm not in a position to comment on that, but there's certainly the possibility that this crackdown on corruption could simply be a matter of consolidating state power. But I guess one of the questions I have, you, you did this wonderful study on I think it was the road construction test. Was it you that did that? I guess it was a. It was sort of an RCT, and you looked at oh Ben Olken. Yeah, I would be so happy if that had actually that was his doctoral thesis. It was very impressive. Yeah, and so apparently it was the threat of audits that seemed to curtail bad behavior. But if that's the case, then is it simply a matter of teaching people auditing technology? I mean, a lot of the people in the international aid community would argue that we just need to bring in auditors. We need to train people in government to uh, do better evaluation of the data, collect better data and so forth. Or is that the kind of technology that can also be flipped on and off? So let me just give a brief outline of the Olkin road study and then say what I think we do and don't learn from it, which I think is actually essential to answer the question. As his thesis, Ben Olkin essentially randomized the oversight of 700 or so road-building projects in villages in Indonesia. And a third of them were given a pot of money, I think it was about $10,000, something like that, to build a road and told basically nothing else. A third of them got the money to build the road and were told, we're going to come in afterwards, as you described, and audit the road and see how much it actually costs to build this road. And then a third of the village, the World Bank, which was paying for this, facilitated like town hall style meetings so people in the village could see how the money was being spent and perhaps act as monitors themselves. And the punchline from the paper is that community oversight villages had just as much money lost to leakage as the villages where nothing was done at all, whereas leakage was about a third lower in the audit villages. And so, yeah, it's like chalk one up for just good old-fashioned oversight. I have had people say when I've described this study, oh, it wouldn't have looked like that in whatever. India is certainly a place where I've heard this because the dynamics of Indian village politics are just different from what was going on in Indonesia. And this is, since we haven't made this point thus far in the conversation, we're trying to collect facts about the world and look at what seem to be broadly consistent, robust facts, rather than, I think it's very dangerous to look at one study and say, ah, audits will be our salvation. Forget about 
community empowerment because like look at what happened in those 700 Indonesian villages. It's also worth noting and every empirical exercise has its limitations. This is just one implementation in one type of community at getting the broader public involved. And so it's definitely an informative data point, but we wouldn't want to see this and just say, oh, it's all just bringing in outside observers and making sure the money doesn't get stolen. I will also make one more observation about the Olkin study, which I'm fairly sure Olkin would agree with, which is that it's very hard to pin this on corruption specifically. There is something in the paper that tries to do so, but I think Olkin would describe it as suggestive rather than dispositive. And this is my excuse to say that it's generally very difficult to know whether people are lazy, corrupt, or stupid. Because with any of these three, you got kind of a crappy road. And you don't know whether they were, again, lazy, stupid, or corrupt in how they went about building it. And if you audit them, they'll probably be a little less stupid because they'll pay attention a bit more. Will be a little less lazy, but also maybe a little less corrupt. And it does matter in terms of what we think the solution to the problem is. Well, you described there's this one story in the org where these consultants went into these Indian textile mills and offered them some basic consulting advice. And this resulted in some substantial improvements in productivity and profitability. And these were some sort of basic managerial skills. I mean, the kinds of things that either you learn in business school or you learn working in an American company. Are there similar $20 bills on the sidewalk in the public sector? Could we just kind of run some mid-level managers at various government agencies through some kind of basic training? And would this result in improvements in governmental effectiveness and perhaps reductions in corruption? Possibly. Or is there something different about the public sector? So I'm, I wasn't going to just leave my answer as possibly because I have little more to observe about this, especially since you invoked the org. And one of the messages that we try to get across, I hope, in the org, though you're right, it's 10 years ago. I haven't looked at it. We talked about this before we started. I haven't looked at it in quite some time. But one reason why it might be possible to bring in outside consultants and make a textile factory run more efficiently is because you're working on a very simple problem, which is just making more product, more non-faulty product, where it's easy to test the faultiness of the product. And the more you produce, the better you're doing. Lots of government tasks lack that sort of simplicity. Yeah, This is one fear that we have when you hear people like Jared Kushner saying they're going to run government like a business. Well, government isn't a business, and you wouldn't want to run it like a business because there are features of the government's job that are just very, very different from the job of a business. Let me give a couple of examples. One, when I was a PhD student and hopelessly naive about such things, stupidly naive, dare I say, my mother, who was the head of her department. She's a physician. I'd gone home for Christmas holidays, and she was working both on Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. And I told her, like, you're the boss. Someone else should be doing this. And she said, well, no one else wants to take these shifts. And I said, well, just hold an auction. 
which is to reverse auction. Start high and lower the price as long as people are bidding. And she quite rightly said that this, if you monetize everything, the evidence on extrinsic incentives crowding out intrinsic motivation is perhaps a little iffy. But that was basically our argument. Like if you turn every, if you make everything about money, people are going to lose their sense of purpose. I think you see that sort of thing much more at a nonprofit or a governmental organization. Uh, maybe I'll just leave it at that story. My other story has a similar flavor to it. Well, this takes us back to that seminal article that I referenced earlier about the United Nations diplomats and the parking tickets, which is now, I guess, 20 years old or so, but its citations probably are continuing to increase. And I think that the takeaway from that study was that if you take a pure economist view that it's incentives that matter, you can't explain the phenomenon. The culture plays a huge role. But at the end of the day, I mean, you know, culture doesn't emerge in a vacuum either. And so it seemed to be an argument in favor of a complex approach to problems to draw insights from economics, but also from, well, whether it's psychology and sociology, I mean, we don't really have Department of Culture anywhere, but effectively, if there were a Department of Culture, we'd have to get them involved in the story. Do you think that we need to spend more time convincing economists to take culture seriously, or do we need to spend more time convincing the psychologists and sociologists to take incentives seriously? I think what economists push back against is not that culture matters, but just using culture as a residual explanation once you've tried everything else and nothing else quite worked. And so you say, oh, it's just culture. That's why we get these differences across groups. As is surely almost always the case, the truth lies somewhere in the gray between the black and the white. I think it was Mark Granovetter, but I may be misattributing it to him, who said that more or less that sociology is an over-socialized field and economics is an under-socialized one. And one can only hope that the two fields can learn to borrow from one another in a way that is not confrontational but cooperative. Because if you, certainly if you looked at professional schisms as reflected on Twitter, you would say, ah, these people have irreconcilable differences. But I think that's just the world according to Twitter rather than the world as it actually is. That said, yeah, I do think that other fields have the legitimate concern that economists are trying to explain everything in the world using their tools rather than saying, you know, there are limits to what we can understand with this framework. And there is this other part of what governs societies. And we either need to spend a lot more time talking to sociologists and working with them, or just leave that to these other fields. Well, Ray, thank you so much. I'm sure we could keep going on and on, but everyone check out the latest book on corruption, the old book on corruption, Economic Gangsters, which is still super insightful. Also, we've got the org in our lives of markets. I think of these as two parts of the same story. And then this one, of course, risky business. So talk to you again soon. Yeah, I hope so. Thanks again for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.